At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Are you thinking about starting a podcast but don't know where to start? Let me take a second to tell you about Anchor by Spotify. It's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast across a plethora of listening platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, all the big ones. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, completely free. If you're thinking about starting a podcast, do yourself a favor and check out anchor.fm or download the app to get started. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying Increase of Our Reality, I'd really appreciate it if you could drop a review or a rating and I'll give you a shout out on the show. While you're at it, come join the Telegram group and follow the show on Instagram and across social media. If you'd like to support the show, check me out over on Patreon for early access to Inquiries of Our Reality and Big Dumb Inquiries, which is the Swapcast show I co-host with Kyle Rainey of the Big Dumb Podcast. If you'd like to pick up some merch, come check out the merch store. If you want to help me out to upgrade my equipment and pump out even more awesome content for you guys, come donate over on Anchor or Kofi. And last but not least, if anyone is interested in being a guest on the show, sponsoring the show, has a topic they want covered, or you feel you have something to contribute to the show, send me an email at inquiriesofourrealitypodcast at outlook.com. All the links I mentioned are in the show description. Just tap or click the Linktree link to be directed. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate you, and I couldn't be doing this without you. Now enjoy the show. The reality we live in can be a very strange place. Most of the time, fact being stranger than fiction. How will we ever start to understand this reality we live in unless we question everything? Join me and a guest as we unravel the mysteries of this reality, one topic at a time. This is Inquiries of Our Reality with Shane Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the now 27th episode of Inquiries of Our Reality. Today with me, I have Paranoid American. How's it going, man? Hey, very good, man. Thank, and uh, I guess that means I'm part of the 27 Club. Ooh, yeah. See, another symbolic number. I've had a lot of guests that'll say that whatever episode number I've had has been semi-symbolic <laughs> to them. So yet another one, man. It's working out perfect. And for anybody that doesn't know you, uh, you're a comic book creator, and that's awesome. And you do conspiracy comic books. And I'd, uh, I'd love you to tell the guests a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I usually describe it as... Um, creating comics about conspiracy theories and occult research. I've been doing it since about 2012 when I worked at Disney, working with a bunch of animators and illustrators, and it was just kind of in in my blood day to day. And I figured, man, I'm I'm an absolute conspiracy theorist nutcase. How can I get other people to to sort of drink my Kool Aid? Uh, and I wound up, you know, writing some comic books and getting some of my friends to draw it and. 10 years later, you know, I, I haven't been able to shake that habit yet. So you want to check out um, paranoidamerican.com. You can check out a bunch of comic books and I'll, I'll get into some some drops at the end of the episode, too. But that's essentially what uh, my, my goal is, is just taking really interesting, deep, esoteric research, breaking it apart, understanding it and then reconfiguring it in really cool, entertaining ways. 
So uh, what what ended up getting you into this? What uh what was your red pill moment, and what made you feel like you need to write comic books about these types of topics? Uh, I mean, I've always wanted to work in comic books. It, it felt like something that I never actually was able to approach. I knew a lot of people that that could draw really well. I even knew some people that ended up working in animation and stuff. Uh, like, like I mentioned, when I was at Disney, I worked around people that were putting out, you know, movies that I, I grew up with. Um, so that just kind of inspired me to like take these crazy conspiracy theory ideas that I had in my head and actually try to like write one out. And originally I wanted to do uh, an animated series. I wanted like a Rugrats or a Doug, but the conspiracy theory version of like a Nicktoon and long story short, that, that takes a lot of money and effort and a huge team of people. Whereas a comic book, you can sort of do it a little bit more asynchronously. You know, you can work on it over the course of years and refine the script. So it was a lot easier to, to kind of dip my toe in that way. So comic books kind of started as like an easier way to dip my toe in. And I just kind of fell into the deep end and haven't come back out yet. Dude, I appreciate that you do comic books, though, because uh, at least for me as a kid, and I'm sure a lot of people do, like comic books were like a sanction. Like I, I was that weird kid that I don't even want to say weird, but I was that quiet kid sitting in the back of the class and reading comic books all the time. So like if there is any media that I would have been very interested in that I feel like you definitely cornered a pretty good size of the market on, it's definitely this conspiracy comic book stuff. Yeah, hopefully, man, because I, I was the same kid that had like the comic books stashed inside the math books. It looked like you were doing work. But yeah, I mean, that was... Uh, for whatever reason, man, I just I just absolutely fell in love with comics. Um, I I actually didn't grow up with the traditional DC Marvel. For whatever reason, uh, I fell in love with this really niche comic called I think it was called Ralph Ralph Snart or Ralph Snarf, and it was by a company called Now Comics, and it was kind of like an, a a slightly more adult. It was it was kind of like a like a PG thirteen style, but that was what I started out with when I was I don't know five or six or something. And I just fell in love with that whole kind of um, storytelling method and the the art style and everything. So it, that also kind of shapes part of my other thing that I usually say about my comic company is that it's spandex free, where we don't do like superheroes or guys with big muscles that um, fly into outer space and shoot lasers and, you know, fight aliens nonstop. Um, it's it's a lot more grounded in reality, a lot more human element, a lot of making fun of the human element. Um, and I think, again, this comes from my love of that first comic that I grew up with, which was, I want to say Ralph Snart or Ralph Snarf. I can't remember his name, but that was the name of it. I mean, dude, I definitely can relate with that, though, because as far as me, like, of course, I read the generic comic books, but my biggest interest in comic books was I was reading stuff like Crossed, uh, Sin City, um, just like the darker side of comic books. That's always kind of been what I'm into. And I feel like they definitely like it's like its own corner in a sense where I feel like they're just, yeah, it's, it's the dark horse. It's the vertigo. It's those, like those imprint labels that usually get uh, a little bit edgier and that weren't, you know, again, it's a lot of like spandex free kind of stuff. Dude. Well, the one that I kind of did get into as far as like spandex, but not exactly was definitely spawn, but that was so off with the whole, yeah, like, spawn gets its own category. like, yeah, it's kind of that same sort of, um, spandex look and even has what, what's joking is like the rob liefeld pouches i don't know if you're um like if you know who rob liefeld is mm -hmm. or, or so like you know the joke is that he just put pouches on everything for a long time and that's kind of like his iconic thing and there's there's pl plenty of versions of spawn where he also has around his thigh he's got this little like you know thing of pouches all around it and that's so indicative of that era but 
Spawn was uh, on Image Comics and Image was one of the very first like non-big companies to come out and make huge waves. Um, and, and I think right around the same time that Spawn came out on Image was the Max. And the Max is yep. by far my in my top three. I, I don't know if I can say my favorite of all time, but it, it is definitely in the top three with Sam Keith being, you know, my top three favorite artist of all time as well. Dude, I used to love that comic book. I forgot about that one until you brought it up. But just like the whole like Spawn just being so untraditional. Like what was his first guy he went after was like a pedophile ice cream truck driver. Like yeah. what other comic book <laughs> company could pull that off. <laughs> yeah, and, and the the movie that was John Leguizamo that plays that guy. Yeah, yep. I can't remember like, his name from the comic. but And it was legit. It was like an actually creepy clown, you know. And what's creepier than a freaking evil pedophile clown? Like they went right for it. They didn't dance around. Wait, did he become the violator? I thought there was an ice cream truck driver that was like the that he ended up hanging up, and then the detectives came after him, and then uh, the violator. Oh, you're, was abs- yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah, dude, just some weird shit, bro. Like again, who could pull that shit off? Even in the movie, dude. Like everybody said that shit flopped, but I thought it was awesome. It was just like the perfect amount of cheesy. Where like I'm into that like '80s horror shit, like Evil Dead. So it was like it was perfect in my opinion. Some of the the graphics don't hold up now, which kind of sucks. <laughs> but also the uh, the HBO series is worth checking out. There was a I think it was a ten episode run um, of of animated uh, Spawn episodes. I think Todd McFarlane like did that 90s. one too. Because yeah, I remember he did. That, that was a Todd McFarlane. Because it was on HBO and or something like there that. Were, there yeah. was a Max too, but I don't think the Max got as many episodes. And I think it, it didn't, I don't know if it came on HBO. I think it might have been inserted in like a liquid television uh, kind of thing. But that one was also really cool to see. Yeah, I'll definitely have to dig into that one. I didn't know that there was one for the Max. I, like, I completely forgot about him for a while. I found him originally because my buddy had a tattoo of him on the back of his leg. The guy used to do my tattoos when I was like 16. And I was like, who the hell is that? And then I started digging into that dude. That shit was awesome, dude. I oh, love he's so cool, man. Yeah, there's also on on unknown uh, comic book animations, there's also an animated Lobo series. It doesn't, you know who Lobo is from DC? Yeah. So he had, there, there's there's one that's actually like a live, um, not live action, but um, uh, like an actual cartoon, like traditional cartoon. But then there was another like online Flash series and I've got all of like the original flash clips, but it's it's a pain in the ass to convert it to like video because some of them are interactive where he's like standing on a street and you got to click on his little like space motorbike thing. And then he gets on the bike and flies away. But um, but it's it's cool. Like it's completely lost the time now. But there's like this full like 20 minute interactive Lobo cartoon um, that like no one's ever seen before. That's another one I'll definitely have to look into that I didn't know about. Because even like going into the mainstream stuff, like we were talking about, I've always been kind of like drawn to like the darker side of comic books. Like I was super excited that they finally made a TV series for Moon Knight because I've been waiting for that shit since I was a kid. Because I always dug the fact that he was kind of like one of the more gritty characters as far as Marvel goes. He reminds me a lot of the Max too, um, yeah. Moon, Moon Knight. Because they, they have like these very obvious like mental afflictions that they're working through. And to them, they feel like they're these monsters slash superheroes uh, and it's like you never really know what's actually going on in their lives see i've always I, been I into love like those. the anti-hero concepts where it's like they're a hero but it depends on whose perspective you look at it from they don't see themselves as a hero just because they're dark characters like spawn for example like he's a fucking essentially like a demon but he's trying to do good but he's like can still be perceived as the bad guy where he's like trying to like see his family from afar and stuff but just for whatever reason those anti-heroes i've always been drawn to I definitely recommend Lobo big time, man. He's like my favorite anti-hero, I think. 
So I've read a couple of his comic books because my uh, my mom's boyfriend when I was a kid, uh, he was an avid comic book collector. So we used to go to like comic book conventions. I got a lot of his like old stuff. Like I got his old uh, copy that was drawn by Frank Miller. Uh, it was Spawn and Batman. Uh, a lot of really cool stuff. But that's what got me into it originally was like an adult comic book collector. So that's kind of like you can see that in the comic books that I was into like what he was into being like, you know, a 35 year old guy that read comic books. So, <laughs> yeah, I remember I found my, my dad's stash of comic books uh, when I was younger, like, I don't know, 10 or 11 or something. And uh, it was, he didn't necessarily like read a bunch of like comic books that I still like today, but what he did have were a bunch of like underground shock comics, like zap comics. Have you ever heard of zap before? I think I have. It sounds familiar. So like, so I, I, I think they're just known as underground comics, but it was like this whole genre of, of styles and everything. Um, and then in addition to that, he had a bunch of like cracked magazine and mad magazine. And I feel like there was this transition period where I think I fell even more in love with like those political poking fun um, cartoons and sort of like satirical articles that I found in mad and cracked. And I started like leaning harder into that. And I, and that, that kind of like shaped a little bit of my vision too, because instead of falling in love with all these superheroes wearing spandex, I really loved, you know, these guys making fun of the president or making fun of celebrities and just kind of poking fun at, at pop culture in like a more crass way, you know, like, like dick and fart jokes and, <laughs> and just like, you know, showing all sorts of uh, things that you feel like, you know, you get in trouble if your teacher found you reading it. Um, and for whatever reason, I just really sort of, uh, bonded and, and kind of like fell in love with the whole message there. And, and it kind of blended, right? Like my love with comic books and, and this new budding love of like satirical, politically, um, cognizant sort of like storylines kind of like came together. And I think that was a perfect breeding ground to when I first started hearing the word Illuminati or hearing about like skull and bones and Freemasons. It was like right in the middle of like the peak of comic book reading and Mad magazine and cracked. And what's that Illuminati? It was just like perfect. And this is like the mid nineties. And I think like conspiracy con was fully underway. The, uh, the, the cannabis um, cup, I think was like conspiracy themed in like 1996 or 97 or something. It was, it just felt like, you know, the whole world just loved conspiracy theories right at this moment in time when I was kind of like coming into the world. X-Files was out. That was like one of the biggest things. Nowhere Man was another big show that was out. Um, that was about this, you know, this conspiratorial idea that a guy was like programmed and they erased his brain, but he had all this like secret knowledge. And um, so, yeah, man, I, I mean, I felt like there was no way that I couldn't have come out of the mid nineties as a conspiracy theorist obsessed with comic books and video games and pop culture. Dude, it kind of gives you a wider range of people that'll read it too. Cause then it's like, you can speak to the conspiracy people, but if you're doing comedy along with it, you can get people to read your stuff that normally wouldn't read conspiracy stuff and they can still enjoy it where it's like, you know, the people that are into conspiracies will be seeing it like, Oh, this is some truth. And then the other people are just like entertained by it. So it's just, it, it widens your market more than anything. Yeah. And honestly, I find, that I probably attract comic book readers the least out of everyone again because I'm because I'm not catering to what um, most people expect when you read a, a Marvel or a DC comic or something if if you're big into Vertigo and Dark Horse and and you know Boom Comics and all of these like side labels then yeah you'll probably love the kind of stuff that we're putting out but it's definitely not the majority it's it's a, a niche in itself but I, I love that aspect of it because I don't need to go after comic readers. I can go after, like you said, people that like conspiracy theories, 
um, people that are into like of occult research. And, and it's almost like, hey, I love the topic of MK Ultra, or I love the topic of, you know, sacred geometry and, and esoteric teachings. What's that? There's a comic book about it. Yeah, let's check that out. And that's sort of the, the demographic and the, the readers that I, I hope that I attract. Um, of course, I'd love more comic book readers to, to pick it up, but it, it definitely feels like uh, um, there's more to offer for people that aren't familiar with the comic medium. And, uh, and honestly, it's, it's almost like a privilege to reintroduce people that I hear all the time, man, I haven't read a comic since I was 13. And I found out that you wrote a comic about MK Ultra, and I read it and I loved it. And now I'm reading comic books again. That's so cool to hear that, you know, I might be that catalyst on reconnecting people with this comic medium that they forgot about. So you're two birds, one stone for me, dude, because I'm obviously big into conspiracies, hence my podcast. But also, I'm a big, avid, dark style, you know, not popular style comic book reader. So that definitely fit in, too, because like the most recent series that I, I say I read was uh like crossed in why the last man so again not very like mainstream popular comic books i believe they just made a show for why the last man but yeah not like, not super recent either <laughs> but still still good comic books though like crossed like i was surprised oh ab- yeah absolutely and and crossed kind of set a new bar for like it's funny because cross comes up when i'm working with comic artists and you want to know like the level of violence or gore that they're comfortable with Usually that's the number one thing. They'll be like, oh, you want this like crossed, <laughs> you know, or like uh, worse than crossed or not as bad as crossed. Like it kind of sets that that bar of like what people expect now when it's like over the top violence and gore. Dude, funny you mentioned that uh, hiding your comic books in high school, because there's this one particular time I was reading uh, one of the crossed comic books back when I was in high school. And uh, I don't remember exactly what the scene was, but it was something like one of the families decided to like stay back. And it was just this like scene where he's like, you bitch, this is your fault. And they're getting like raped by like a group of those, the fucking crossed. And as I'm like reading this and I open up the page and there's just this like rape scene, my fucking math teacher walks up behind me and fucking looks at my book. <laughs> She's like, what are you reading? And I'm just like, close. <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling home. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't even know how else to explain it. Like, I swear I'm not reading anything bad. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. He just walked up on just this bloody... <laughs> gory ass scene and then like the next page was one with like uh that one dude who's carrying around like the horse dick and like beating people with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there was like a similar one too like uh the boys um had like the hero gasm uh scene um that was like groundbreaking for the time i felt all, of the, all that stuff came out way after i was out of school I, I feel like the worst i could have had in in uh in high school at that point wouldn't have been anywhere near that you see in cross today Dude, I'm was, happy. Was, I, I love how much the the comic medium has been like pushing the boundaries. We're we're a very far away from when they used to have the comic authority have to approve, you know, every single story and panel. Dude, it's nice too that it's like I get that they have to have a rating system on stuff, but like a lot of the stuff that they depict in comic books, you wouldn't be able to do in any other form of media. Like you'll never see a fucking cross show unless it's a completely independent show. Like that'll never be on like Netflix or anything. Like that's well, and, the, and honestly. This is, uh, I can't remember who gave me this, this tip of advice, so I'm not going to name drop the, the wrong person, but, and this, this started out as a piece of advice that was given to me when I first started, and it ends up being my favorite thing to go back to, and it's the, exactly what you just said, there's things that you can do in comic books you can't do in any other medium, even if you include like 3D special effects, so, so for example, imagine you're working on the latest, you know, Avengers movie or whatever, 
like sure you can sit down and write out some crazy doctor strange scene where he splits into like 80 versions of the multiverse and there's you know interdimensional travel and 3d holograms and stuff floating around but that still requires a room full of animators and art directors and you know hundreds of thousands of dollars to make that scene happen so there is a very real limitation based on the amount of time and the amount of um, budget and the amount of people that takes to put that vision together but when you're talking about an artist sitting down and illustrating something like that that team of people doesn't have to exist um, and because it's not all moving you can leave a little bit more to the imagination and it's just so cool because that means that you can put together these like grand abstract images that you couldn't even do in 3d and video but you can do it in a comic book um, and the the advice that I got essentially builds on that. And it says, embrace that, exploit that. If you ever find yourself just writing three pages of like two guys in an office talking, like you're kind of wasting all of the potential on that page. Like, why not have some crazy, like, why not have the world explode? Why not have a huge alien ship that's like five times the size of the building, like come and do some crazy thing. Like imagine something that would cost you a million dollars in special effects and have that in your comic otherwise like why aren't you just writing it in black and white letters you know yeah that's very true and then in a sense too it kind of gives you like ownership over your own work because then like you know like if, if somebody tries to recreate it and make a movie out of your comic book there's still a lot more within your comic book so even if somebody's seen the movie they still have a draw to come and actually read the comic book because they know that there's a bunch of shit that they couldn't do yeah, absolutely. And, and there's another cool aspect too, of like, what's not on the page. Um, and, and there's a, a little bit aspect of this in movies where, for example, there's like a, a gory scene that they show like the implied violence, like the guy stabbing out into the dark and then like the blood spraying, but you don't actually see any of that happening. You can do that times 10 in comics because in between the panels, it's just leaving it completely up to the reader's mind. And then there's also this concept of the page turn and a page turn. Um, it's not just this arbitrary act of like, Oh, you know, in order to keep reading the story, I have to turn the page. That turning of the page usually implies a greater passage of time. Um, so that like whatever happens at the end of one page and the start of the next, that's completely up to the readers, um, you know, like their imagination. So what happens in the reader's imagination is going to be way cooler than someone sitting down and like recording an exact thing because it's like, oh, that's what happened. Well, that's not as cool as I thought it would be. It's like when you read the book first and then you see the movie, mm -hmm. sometimes you're like, oh, okay, yeah, I get that scene. But man, like I like the, the scene in my head had like a $10 million budget for that scene and not a $5 million budget, whatever. I mean, going off that concept too, it's also kind of cool when you do draw it out and you kind of have it where it's like it leads up because then when you flip the page, it's like a big shock and awe when you have one of those designs where it takes up like the full page where it was leading into something. So it kind of leaves it where it's like, oh God, what's going to happen next? And then when you flip the page, you get to see this giant grand scheme that you couldn't see in the bottom corner, you know? Like I get excited for that kind of page turn too. That's another uh, interesting thing that a lot of people um, miss. There's like these, these like, hidden rules of comic books which uh you know you can break once you know the rules but one of those rules that you might notice is that whenever there's a splash page which is just like one page with just like one big graphic as opposed to a bunch of panels on it that splash page is more often than not the page that you turn to because if you if you turn the page and the splash is on the opposing one it's like 
you're trying to like quickly read through the page on the left and get through all those panels so that you can like admire that splash page on the right. So A, it takes the wind out of the sails for that splash page. And it also forces the reader to kind of like whip through the panel. So that's why you almost always want to have your big splash image on that, that first thing that you see on the left after you do a page turn, because A, it's way more impressive because you weren't expecting this big image. And then it's also like, you look at that once it gets all your attention, then um, you go to the right page that's got panels on it. This is like a, a pacing, you know what I mean? It's like having this big crescendo of action in the movie and then kind of having like a slower paced version of it. That same dynamic you got to play with in that printed comic form. And it's all on like exactly like the page turn and, and uh, you know, subverting expectations and surprising someone with um, some big visual that they might have expected before. Very true. So before we get too, too far, man, for anybody that hasn't already heard of you or hasn't seen your comic books, uh, why don't you tell everybody about your your most prevalent series, the ones that you've spent the most time on. So if people start looking for you, they know what to look for. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a good idea. <laughs> so the, the first one that I started with, and it's kind of my baby, and I, I usually refer to it as my kitchen sink comic because it's just got like a little bit of everything in it, you know, seriousness, silliness, um, time travel, like actual research. Um, this one's called Time Samplers, and it's about two musicians that use psychedelic time travel to then investigate real conspiracy theories. So, for example, they go back to the Titanic and they experience for themselves what caused it to sink. Um, they go back to the Federal Reserve and they see the, the Federal Reserve coming together on Jekyll Island and the invention of the telephone. Um, they go back to Camp Hero and they witness MK Ultra programming firsthand. Um, so it was it was this way. The original idea for time samplers was I want to explain a conspiracy theory and I want to explain it in such a matter of fact way that like I'm actually showing it happen and having two guys watching it happen in real time, you know, going into a skull and bones initiation, seeing it happen, commenting on, on it as it happens and then going into like, hey, I want to find out the history of this and using time travel to like research the actual fact. But their firsthand uh, visions of this happening being like all the grand visual rumors and stuff, like all of the most far-fetched, you know, fantastical versions of this, showing all that and then combining it with the research. Um, now, it sounds ambitious because it is. <laughs> and, and that's also why I caught my kitchen sink. And it's also... Um, where all of my other comic ideas kind of sprouted out of. So the, the very second series I mentioned is called Secret Mystery School. And this is the one that you mentioned that kind of um, grabbed your, your attention. And the, the, the lineage here is that Time Samplers originally was about these guys that use um, some like unnamed psychedelic drug. And then that lets them sort of sample time and, and travel around in like the Akashic Records. Over the course of Time Samplers, it's on issue five now. Issue six will come out maybe next year. Over the course of those five issues, there's a little bit less importance put on this like psychedelic aspect and how they're doing the time travel and just that like they're in the system and they're jumping around time. And that was because I really wanted to lift that psychedelic drug aspect and put it into a different series and just focus on that as like the main focus. And that is Secret Mystery School. And the premise of Secret Mystery School is that every old religion, every single philosophy you've ever heard of is all based on psychedelic drugs. Some old philosopher or some old 
religious teacher or Buddha or Christ or whatever, they ate a mushroom or they took LSD, they had this crazy trip and then started, you know, spreading their message. And over thousands of years, this has turned into these convoluted, you know, long um, religions with all of these like rules and, you know, Eucharists and magical ceremonies. But really, if you trace it all the way back, it's all just about uh, doing drugs. And and that's kind of this, the, the joke of, secret mystery school towards and towards i think the the last issue in issue four they actually go and take lsd with all of these uh, ancient greek philosophers and one of the guys is complaining and he's like you can't tell me that like all of human civilization and the, and the peak of of human creativity can be summarized as a pink floyd laser light show um, but that's essentially what the premise of the whole series is is that the whole secret mystery school is that the the ancients you know figured out this badass like laser light show um showed it to a bunch of people across the world and everyone was so infatuated with it that it sort of uh spawned all of these mystery cults that we still sort of see the echoes of today so so time samplers started it secret mystery school sort of bred off of that one and then i've got a list of like 10 other comic series that in their own rights all started with uh, something that that I wanted to focus on in more detail. So I, I want to go through every single title. Those are the two main ones. And then um, you can get a good sampling. I've got an anthology called Paranoid American History, Volume 1. And this is a series of eight different stories by eight different artists um, about a whole bunch of different topics, just like a, a wide sampling to to get an idea of, you know, my my concept on different things. So that was actually the first one I scooped and I'm planning on reading it some more after uh, after the show. I started to skim through the pictures before the show started because I just got it delivered today. I was hoping to get it before we went on so I could kind of bounce back and forth with you on it. But I'm definitely yeah, I'd love to talk. hear which one you like the, the most out of all those. Yeah, I'll definitely as soon as I uh, get done reading it, I'll definitely shoot you a message and let you know. But I was looking just a, a, around in the comic book itself, and I, I was already digging just like every aspect of it. So I'm really, really looking forward to reading it. And, and uh, honestly, it's one of the best kind of introductions to all the work that I put out because it's got it's got silly. It's got um, a silly, cartoony looking version of Stanley Kubrick directing the moon landing. It's called Never a Straight Answer. Uh, I think it has like maybe three or four pages of like a preview of a much longer book that's going to come out later this year, but it's also got a, um, a watercolor based comic. That's about the dare program and the Iran Contra crack scandal uh, of the eighties. It's got a story about Lindbergh, um, the, the crime of the century, the missing Lindbergh baby and how he might've killed his own kid because um, it, it had some like developmental issue and he was like big into eugenics. So he might've killed his own kid out of his belief in eugenics. So like that one's a little bit darker. It's not as like silly with cartoony bright colors as the Stanley Kubrick. Um, but it's, it just shows like the, the wide gamut of different stories that are in there. That'll probably be the ones I gravitate more to. Like we were talking, I've always liked like the darker side of comic books. And it's funny that you mentioned the Stanley Kubrick cartoon drawing. Cause as soon as I pulled it out of the bag, my, uh, my daughter looked at it and goes, who's that? And I'm like, Oh, that's Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the first one she noticed. And she noticed it cause he was like kind of cartoony looking. And then there was like a baby underneath it. Oh, the, the cover art. Yeah. Yep. But uh, that baby is, is the Lindbergh baby. That's what I figured now that you were talking about it yep. too, because I didn't get a chance <laughs> to read all the stories yet, but yeah, that's what I figured. <laughs> that's the other hope too, is that well, a lot of my comics after you read it, um, on the second or third read through you'll you'll keep noticing more and more like cool little hidden symbols and easter eggs 
I say that was the same for uh, I was hearing somebody talk about your coloring books that you were kind of doing too. And you were saying that there's just a bunch of crazy, intricate, different designs hidden within it that every time you look at the pages, you'll notice different things. And yeah, this is the, the Paranoid Portraits coloring book that I did with um, with my friend Shane, um, known as Tron, uh, his artist name. But it's got 33 different portraits. And yeah, every single portrait has got all of these these kind of like deeper meetings, uh, symbols baked into them, whether it's like the number of elements or, um, you know, certain uh, symbols that are related to like things that happen to them in their lives. It, it's a, it's a really fun one. Do you want to tell the listeners about just a handful or a couple of your favorite ones through in that book? Uh, it's got Jordan Maxwell, which is one of my favorite all time kind of conspiracy theorists. It's got Manly Palmer Hall, which we talked about before we started recording. He's a, a huge inspiration, but it's got like Jeffrey Epstein. It's got Ghislaine Maxwell. It's got George Soros. Um, we've got like the, the Clinton cabal is in there. It's got, <laughs> it's just got so many, it's got, um, a American version of Baphomet, which instead of, uh, just like a regular Baphomet, he's holding like a McDonald's shake and there's like fries in the background. Um, yeah, there's a Bill Gates in there. There's, there's like any, um, you know, important figure in pop culture and even some like mythological ones. There's a, there's a, a Moloch in there with like a, a cremation of care ceremony and like a little baby burning in front of it. And yeah, man, I mean, we, I, we really did try to hit like every single major topic, David Ike's in there with like some reptilian references. Um, so, it's, and I really do hope that anyone that gets it um, there's like three or four people that they don't recognize and they have to look it up and then it makes them like, Oh wow. Who's this cool, interesting person. That's, that's really the main inspiration for a lot of the things that I do is I want to get someone to say that's stupid or that's so silly. There's no way that anyone believes that, or there's no way that um, there's any research out there that talks about this. And if you just Google almost anything that gets brought up, you know, find yourself down some rabbit hole and, you know, you come out four days later after watching a bunch of YouTube videos and articles, like my mind is blown <laughs> down the rabbit hole. <laughs> Dude, I think I might actually pick that book up. I don't even want to color it. I just want to have it just so I can look at all the crazy artwork in it, to be honest with you. <laughs> Paranoid portraits. Yeah, man. I mean, and honestly, the, the cool thing I was talking about the artist Shane on that is that, um, like, for example, someone that's never heard of Manly Palmer Hall or that's never heard of, you know, Jack Parsons or something is you're sitting in here coloring it in and all these different symbols like you'll get a good idea of just the things that represent this person. And when you start looking it up. Um, we've kind of implanted that image in your head so that now that might even like conjure up this, this sketch of them with all these like baked in almost like memory mnemonic systems um, that can introduce you to like a new character you'd never heard before, like historical people. Dude, I'm just going to sit there. I'm going to get that book and I'm going to look through all the intricate details of it and try to see if there's some stuff that I didn't pick <laughs> up before. And even just seeing like renderings of people I already know, I feel like it'd be super cool to see it done in that format because I've never seen a coloring book in that style, dude. It seems like you're kind of, coming up with all these original ideas that nobody's really gotten that deep into before. And that's a really cool thing to do, man. Yeah, hopefully, I mean, it might not be the best uh, business uh, sense in the world, but uh, I'm absolutely trying to do things that people um, have seen before, but present new content in ways like, wait a second, is that, you know, is that a conspiracy theorist in that coloring book? Like I, I hopefully I can kind of corner that, that market. That's my goal here. But hey, man, I feel like half the battle of life, though, it's not necessarily about wealth, but half the battle is just trying to find something that you love doing where the money doesn't matter necessarily. Because if, you, if you're just chasing money, you're never going to fully enjoy your life. But if you do a job that you love and that you 
want to do every single day, it's like you never really have to work and you get to enjoy that eight hours a day that normal people dread and they're just looking for the weekend and just waiting for their life to pass by. So, well, that's the dream. And the, the dream is that we can't get enough sales going that I could just like focus on making comics full time. Even if it's like a meager existence, I would love that. Right now, if anything, comics is like a, a very expensive, like drug habit almost. <laughs> Hey man, you'll get there one day though. Keep working at it. You know, you already made your rounds as far as podcasters go. You're getting your message out. It's just a matter of time before, you know, the people that are into your thing are going to be into your thing. And well, well, I guess them- the, the the real truth here though is I can't not do this. So even if I'm only making this for me and no one else is reading it, like I can't stop doing it. Like there's like, like if, if I don't get this out in comic form, then I probably will start turning into one of those people that just sees symbols everywhere and is just like rambling to themselves. Like this is this creative outlet that I absolutely have to get these demons out of my head and on the paper. Dude, it's one of those things too, that once you start getting into this kind of community, it's like, you almost feel like it's somewhat of a moral obligation where it's like, you don't want to just go around yelling this information to people that aren't interested in it, but you find like your means of like venting in a sense. Like I'm sure a lot of us podcasters feel that way that I myself came from somebody that nobody ever wanted to hear me talk because I was always just ranting about crazy conspiracies and shit. <laughs> yeah, so, man. Start up a you gotta podcast. Fi- you got to find listen. your tribe, right? <laughs> That's exactly what it is, dude, honestly. And it's like, I've never felt like I fit in in the community. And then here I am talking to all these different people and just getting to talk about all the shit that everybody looked at me like I was crazy for. <laughs> and honestly, when I, when I started, I mean, the Joe Rogan podcast was like a brand new concept that was still just gaining traction and that and it essentially started as like a conspiracy theorist you know pothead podcast um at that point but when i when i started this it was that same concept of like i'm sick of everyone around me and like the regular workforce thinking i'm just this absolute lunatic because i won't shut up about waco and 9 11 and you know reptilians and shit um so it was like i need to put this on paper so that it's an entertaining story and it's cohesive so that people understand I'm not just an absolute insane person that that's not even forming coherent thoughts. Like there's, there's a system here and there's a story that I'm developing and it might take me a year to get it on paper and refined and, and put art to it. But once it's presented um, like it actually, like there, there's some, some sense to the, there's some logic to the chaos, I guess, you know, do that same here with like the podcast and like it's, you're saying with your comic books is that like, once you actually find a way to like categorize your ideas, it makes it so people actually are interested in the ideas. And if somebody's not interested in a particular idea, they can look past that and look at your other ideas. So it just kind of makes it a little bit more understandable for people that may not be into these types of concepts, or maybe they'll build up and be into them just by starting with one little piece of it, you know? Well, and it, and it forces you to structure your actual thoughts because it, it's easy to just be like a ranting conspiracy theorist at the party, like, oh yeah, 9-11 man, and, and the, they're all after us and the, the Illuminati's out there, but... If you actually want to sit down and do a two hour podcast and talk about the Illuminati, or I want to sit down and write a comic book about them. um, Like you have to organize your thoughts and you have to come up with what you actually think and what your speculations are and stuff. Otherwise, I mean, I guess you could just like rant for two hours on just conjecture and rumors and anecdotes that you've heard, but you can only do that for so long until you realize like, man, I'm just kind of like shuffling words around on my plate, you know? Yeah, that's that's the truth of it, too. That's why you got to get like a wide range of things. That's why like my show, at least I like to have a wide variety of things, just like you do with your comic books, where I'm not stuck on one topic is that I feel like I'll get to a point where it's just like you were saying, I'm just 
shuffling shit back and forth using different wording for the same exact thing you know it, it was man it was really hard for me to get out of that because like every every single thing that i wanted to work on for the first few years was, was always mk ultra like i wanted to write like six different comics all about uh just different facets of mk ultra um but it was like i have to like step back and realize man there's so much more out there than this one topic that you might be you know really fascinated in um and it's only helped out because you know, as you start researching many different fields, you realize how interconnected some of those things are. Maybe that's just a conspiratorial mindset of like always trying to find connections between unrelated things. But um, I swear, like the, the more that you spread out, the more it seems like you're able to focus on these more specific topics because you've got all of these different areas and contexts that you can sort of like relate it to. I mean, when you start diving into stuff too, you realize that things are connected more than you realize because there'll be like one person that's into this topic, but they'll also have some dabbling in this topic and some dabbling in this topic where maybe if, even if the topics themselves weren't necessarily connected, the people that are interested in them were interested in all these other topics. So yeah, man. Oh connected. man. A hundred percent dude. that. That one's is really hard to understate where you start realizing like, man, this guy that was in the CIA and was also in these high levels of government also just happened to be like really deep into like magic and shit um oh and he's got all these friends in hollywood it's like those like these people do not exist in vacuums and the information that they read and enjoyed and shared and, and incorporated in their lives were also not existing in vacuums it's this like interconnected dynamic world that we live in um where the books that you read and the movies that you see and the, and the people that you talk to like they actually do have an impact now apply that to CIA agents and to, you know, guys that are have their finger on that red button that says start the war now. Like those are the same people that read the same fairy tales and saw the movies. And, you know, we're, we're all affected by sort of the same input. No, I got to ask you now that we've been talking about conspiracies a little bit. Was there like one particular thing that kind of started to wake you up to all these other concepts? Or was it just something you kind of always been interested in? Uh, I mean, in general, like Skull and Bones and the Freemasons and the Illuminati, I, I just kind of like loved that concept of like mind control and stuff. Um, but when I, I joined the military right out of high school and while I was in the military, 9-11 happened. But since we were in training, um, they didn't want us to, you know, lose focus on just our regular training. So I never... I didn't even hear about 9-11 happening until, I don't know, like four or five days afterwards. And it was only because someone's parents snuck it, like sent them like a newspaper clipping in a letter. And, you know, we're in the barracks and some kids reading like, what the hell is this? And we're like, oh, shit. And we went and asked, you know, the TI like, hey, <laughs> this newspaper clipping got smuggled in. So they ended up saying like, yeah, here's the video footage there was an attack and, you know, airplanes hit the twin towers and Pentagon and yada, yada, yada. But I, I just remember not being part of that and coming out on the other end. And like the world, I guess, had like bonded together and everyone loved America again. And, you know, people across creeds and, and races and cultures were like singing hand in hand and, you know, America was united. And it was just so weird because so I was like, are you sure? Cause like last week it seemed normal and it seems normal now. Like I didn't go through this, uh, this like traumatic ritual where I got to bond with everyone. I was just like out doing my chores and shit. Um, and I just remember 
the people telling me like, oh, it's a whole new world now. And, you know, we're all, we all feel more patriotic and we're all the same American now. And the fact that I missed out on that experience um, and then uh, the, the subsequent like Alex Jones, you know, 9-11 movies that came out after this, it was like false flag inside job that for whatever reason, like me not being part of this shared communal experience and then hearing about all the speculation, I was like, right for it i was i was ready for it i was like yeah let me let me hear what this is really about because it was such a weird abstract thing that i didn't get to participate in it was almost like you weren't biased to it because you didn't actually see it when it actually happened but that's also a form of mind control all on its own because i'm sure that the reason they didn't tell you guys is because they were worried that people probably wouldn't put their full effort forward or they would purposely try to not do things right because who or the they would just get kicked out war? like i'm not ready to go to war fuck this you know yeah, exactly <laughs> so it starts up with like a whole other mind control kind of concept about like how they run the government in a sense so i'm sure that kind of woke you up to things that shows that you think that the first people that would know were soldiers but they just like avoided telling you guys yeah it was yeah it was funny and and actually because i was already sort of obsessed with the concept of mind control at like a like a fictional level but i remember like my first night or two at boot camp fresh off that bus like i saw firsthand like i remember watching it in front of my eyes going like oh, this is mind control. This is what I've been reading about. Holy shit, like this is real and it's working. And I, and, and the, the light switch happened is that uh, when you go to boot camp, fresh off the bus, like, they just start yelling at you immediately. And like, it's, it's 100% to just get you disoriented, you know, break any sort of expectation that you're in control and anything that happens is like you are under the direct control of somebody else. And that first night, man, they would like tell you to go to bed and then come back in like five minutes later and start screaming like, why are you all in bed? You know, like you should be awake and turn the lights back on and just doing that for like over and over and over for that first night to the point where, you know, people were like falling back asleep and they'd come back in at 2 a.m. Like, why are you, you know, why is everyone asleep? Wake up, wake up, wake up. And then they would, they would um, yell at people, get in the shower, take a shower. You're dirty. They've got their clothes on, their shoes, their shirt, their pants, you know, and they're like, they're forcing them, yelling at them, turn that shower on, put the soap on. And people are like putting soap on, like, on top of their clothes, getting soaked. And then they would come back in and start yelling at them. Like, what the hell are you doing? You're still wearing your clothes. Why are you putting water on yourself? Why are you in the shower with all your clothes on? And I just remembered that moment, like, oh, they're fucking with us. Like, <laughs> they're doing this to see how we react to these crazy requests, like these nonsensical things. And it was just like, once once people just stopped trying to make sense of it and just did whatever they wanted you to do, like, that was the point. They were just trying to see who would fall in line and just do, like, who would go into the shower with all their clothes on and turn the water on and start putting soap on their clothes like that's going to be the the flight leader or that's going to be the guy that's going to be in charge of this thing. You know what I mean? Like it was, that was their weeding out of like, okay, that person will fall under command really easily. And the ones that are like sitting back on like, yeah, I'm going to wait and see how this runs its course. Cause this is kind of weird. Like they knew that those are the ones that might need a little bit of extra work. Um, so anyways, that, that was like this like light bulb moment when I was like, holy shit. Like I, I see it because that dude just went in there and just started putting like soap on his clothes and it's because he's stressed out and there's like five people yelling at him all telling him to do different things. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that was, that was a huge, huge moment for me that absolutely shaped my life. I think. 
Dude, it's crazy how much the military breaks people down and how they've learned these methods through through the years, too. It just makes you wonder how advanced they may be for, like, super-duper secret op type people on, like, what types of methods they might use to get them to just completely... Oh, now we're talking about, like, that Project Monarch, like, Alpha, Beta, Delta programming techniques, right? Like, trained assassins that wake up with, uh, you know, a lady walks by with a polka dot dress and you shoot the president. Oh, yeah, dude. Yeah, you're going into all that kind of shit, too. And uh, I got to ask now, too, because you mentioned it earlier. You said you used to work at Disney. So I've always been into the whole, oh, I don't want to say into it, because it's not something that you really, like, want to be into, but it's something I've always been curious about, is as far as, like, Disney with, like, mind control, as far as, like, kids go. Because I've noticed a lot of things that they seem like they do is, like, trauma-based things, like having, like, the parent character die right away in the beginning of a lot of movies and stuff. Like, But working for Disney, have you noticed anything particular that Disney does as far as mind control or any like Disney secrets that a lot of people may not know about. I'm, I'm disappointing when it comes to this particular topic on this line of thought, only because I, I might be overly rational. Some people say, you know, apologists. I'm definitely not a Disney apologist, although that's rich coming from someone that worked there for, for 10 years. Right. Um, but I really do think that it's, it's more of like the cart before the horse thing. I think it's more that, mind control techniques and the mk ultra and the project monarch a lot of the whether it's fact or fiction that surrounds this it drew from disney and it used disney imagery and templates and patterns and you know disney created this this prototype of like the damsel in distress and the princess that needs to be saved by the, the prince and they kind of like instilled that in the popular culture and then mk ultra and if you uh, believe in project monarch came around they kind of use that as a template and built on top of it. I don't necessarily think that Disney was mind control because a lot of the MK Ultra style mind control stuff we talk about came from papers that were recovered from Dachau after World War II. And we were, you know, uncovering like the Nazi um, research. And this mm -hmm. is in like the, the late 30s, 40s, whereas a lot of the Disney stuff that came out, I mean, it had been in the works prior to all of these revelations. I mean, it was kind of around that exact same time, but a lot of like this Disney beta kitten project monarch um, things, you know, theories that come out is all based on, you know, like satanic panic style eighties um, and nineties, not necessarily on the earlier, like uh, sometimes they'll, they'll bring up correlations with like Pinocchio and stuff, but man, the, the nods in Pinocchio are about much darker shit than eighties, nineties, satanic panic stuff. So, so anyways, long-winded version of saying is that I think that Disney imagery and, and archetypes and symbols are definitely used in mind control, but I don't think that Disney puts them there. I think it's more like Disney imagery is used for, at least classic Disney. If we're talking modern day, 2022 or whatever, or, or ever since, you know, Disney and ABC merged and became this like global conglomerate, all bets are off the table, right? Like they could be, it could be intertwined with the, uh, um, the, the, the military industrial complex and Disney could all be one big conglomerate thing. See, the other thing with Disney too, is that almost every year somebody gets busted for uh, pedophilia to some extent. So that's where I start wondering if they're trying to like do like trauma based thing towards kids, because I'm sure that it has something to do with the fact that Walt Disney didn't have close ties with his parents, as far as I know. So maybe that's why he always tried he had a to rough relationship with his dad. Yep. And 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 actually felt like he was uh, like an adopted child or that he was like stolen as a baby. And he was always constantly in search of his like his real parents 
um, which is like every Disney movie ever, <laughs> right? It's like I'm under the the control of my wicked stepmother, and she's not my real mother. Um, it was sort of like uh, Walt Disney's uh, life in a nutshell, you know. Yeah, and it seems like he definitely had some kind of fantasy about his parents being dead because, <laughs> again, going back to it, that's why like the, one of the parent characters die in the first five minutes of almost every classic Disney movie. <laughs> yeah, he definitely fit a pattern, man, and, and it worked. I mean, it's it moves those stories right along and it instills a reason for these kids to go out on their own. And and um, it's it's not again like like these things don't exist in a vacuum. So you said like, oh, there's all these pedos they get caught in like disney there's also a big one with like um like nickelodeon and uh animators there was like a big like to catch a predator and they kept finding all these like cartoon guys that worked on it but i would say that that there's another good explanation for this and it's that people that are attracted to disney especially adults and um i i I worked at disney for 10 years but i don't necessarily think i was ever like a disney fan i feel like I grew out of Disney at a, like a young age. You know, once I saw Jurassic Park, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm into like dinosaurs and like movie magic and stuff. And maybe not so much Aladdin and cartoons and stuff. Um, but people that are still obsessed with Disney well into their later years after the kids move out and everything and so obsessed with it, um, you know, they, they're trying to connect with this like childhood and, and this like older nostalgic, um, like childlike wonder and there's no wonder that that also attracts people that are just stunted emotionally, maybe, and just never mature out of like wanting to live in Disney movies. And that's probably a large subset of these guys that, you know, creep and they want to they want to follow little kids around because they they kind of imagine themselves as also still being kids at heart in a really sick, weird way. But that that explains why there's like this this big pocket, I think, of like Disney fanatics that are also absolute creepos. Yeah, dude, that's the truth of it, too, is I feel like it's it's like a draw in a sense, too, that if you're like creepy, you want to be into these like kid concepts, too, because you feel like it's almost like relatable with kids. Like even with Disney, I feel like they can get away with a lot of shit just because people view them as wholesome as a general public. So like they can put some like creepy shit in their stuff and people like look right over it and not even think twice about it. Like the fucking Pleasure Island thing from Pinocchio is like a perfect example. Like, how many people have seen that movie and not once thought it was weird that they talk about taking boys to a place called Pleasure Island where they come back and they're not boys anymore? Like, <laughs> well, and Pleasure Island them. was the name of an actual attraction at Disney World for quite a while until they they uh, turned it into, I think it's called Disney Springs now. But, but Pleasure Island used to be an adult-only section on Disney property that you could go and get drunk at after hours. See that, but like the wording they use, I don't know if they intentionally realize that it's creepy, but it definitely comes out creepy. Or if it's just years later, like it wasn't perceived as creepy then, but looking at it like 40, 50 years later, you're just like, what the fuck were they thinking? Well, I mean, so Pinocchio is a good example because in that movie, that that Pleasure Island part where they're like kidnapping kids and bring them away and they, you know, you're not going to come back as a kid. The implication is like kind of creepy on it. But but the actual source of that is even scarier because it wasn't because this is based on the actual story of Pinocchio from Italy. And at the time, like kids were literally being kidnapped and forced into, you know, you name it, sex, sex trade or or forced um, manual labor or just, 
you know, being kidnapped and never seen again. It's not like this was this creepy thing that Disney baked into their movie. This was like a real thing that was happening in Italy to children at the time, which is way creepier than the implied like, oh, they're they're getting, you know, kidnapped by um, in this this Disney cartoon. Like, no, they were at, like kids were actually being kidnapped. And the book was written about the actual kidnappings. And then the movie was based on the book, which was based on actual kidnappings. See, just like weird things that they pick and choose to do. Like, I'm almost curious. I'm, I'm surprised, honestly, that Disney hasn't made some type of reference to like adrenochrome or something like that within their within one. Well, of their if uh, it depends, it depends on how far you read into it. But in uh, Monsters, Inc., they're Ooh, yeah, right. So so Monsters, Inc., the general premise is that they're scaring kids and they scare they scare them and it fills up this like liquid meter. Um, and that they have to use this as like their energy. So that could be a vague reference to adrenochrome because um, the, the common mythology is that adrenochrome is like more potent if you get fear um, involved in the extraction process. But there's also one of the initial scenes when they're going under the bed to show where the monsters are hiding. There's a soccer ball and you say like, oh, great, there's a soccer ball. Well, if you look at the pattern in a soccer ball, it is actually the same exact configuration as what's called the uh, the skeleton figure for adrenochrome um, chemical makeup. It actually looks exactly like the pattern. It's on a soccer ball. So there's been some some really deep speculations, as you can imagine, that that soccer ball in the movie of Monsters Inc. that can you know vaguely be construed as them extracting adrenochrome. But, but the combination of the topic of the movie and that soccer ball in this scene, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost like a direct correlation. If, if you're a hardcore conspiracy theorist, that's all the proof you need to know that Monsters, Inc. is literally about adrenochrome. And the fact that it fills up inside of a red vial, that's another one, that it's like a red marker on the side of it. And then that machine they have that's farther on in the machine that like sucks the screams out of the kids. Mm-hmm. That's that could be another link to it because there could be something like that, you know, as far as like the adrenochrome concept goes that like it's like an extraction machine, you know. So, I mean, it's, it would be hard to find a better example of such a direct reference to adrenochrome. So there you go. There's a Disney movie that 100 uh, percent has some adrenochrome references in it, even even if you ignore the soccer ball thing and even if you ignore um, that, like screams and scares could be this more abstract concept, the concept that fear can um make more potent adrenochrome predates uh any disney movie it goes back into the early 1900s even so it seems like you've done some deep dives into adrenochrome do you have any uh cool information you'd like to share with the listeners uh so i mean i've i've i started on a comic that was just going to be a quick one shot about a bunch of kids ordering adrenochrome off the black um off the dark net and like something goes horribly wrong but as I was doing this, I realized that I didn't even know what adrenochrome was, um, if it was a fictional substance, if it was a real substance, what it would actually do. Because I was thinking in a comic book, if these kids ordered adrenochrome and did it off the dark web, if adrenochrome is a real substance, then someone in the actual real world that we live in must have ordered adrenochrome at some point and done it and wrote some kind of trip report about it. So, and if that's the case, like, I want to go and find out what it actually does to people and then maybe, you know, then figure out what I'm going to write in the comic. Well, anyways, the comic never happened. It's never going to happen because I got way sidetracked into this deep rabbit hole of adrenochrome. And now I'm, I'm actually working on an actual book about it. 
um, you know, like like a straight research book that goes into the, the full history of of its research and, and its discovery and everything. So yeah, there, there's there's a, a multiple podcasts worth of stuff that I could start dropping that's interesting about adrenochrome, but but some of the more interesting ones are that originally when it was discovered, there were a whole bunch of newspaper articles that just kind of came and then went. And then like this, this rumor just vanished almost immediately. And I haven't been able to trace like when it stopped or, or who stopped it, but that adrenochrome extracted from children could be fed to other children and it would cause them to mature quicker to the point where they were saying that you like you could raise a calf and do a full-grown cow in a quarter of the time and that the implications is you could also raise a child into a full-grown person in a quarter of the time with the right type of adrenochrome and that once another one that was related to that is that these these assumed effects of adrenochrome would immediately stop once a kid hit puberty. So like once you turn like 13 or 14 and your voice drops and you start, you know, um, growing pubes and stuff, like the adrenochrome would stop having its effect on you. So this, this link to adrenochrome and children and it like being more potent depending on how young the source is, um, this goes back to like the early 1900s. This one blew my mind. And there was also one... This might just be a complete coincidence, but there was a full uh, length uh, newspaper article on the left side of the newspaper was talking about this, you know, adrenochrome and and feeding it to kids and they can mature faster. And this might be this new uh, miracle drug where, you know, you can make your kids and turn into adults overnight. And then on the very same page to the right of it was an article with a huge picture of Moloch and talking about children's sacrifice to Moloch. And again, this is like, uh, it might've been like 1928 or something. Um, it was, it was early 1900s, but I just remember this blowing my mind. Like I thought that adrenochrome and Moloch was like a YouTube QAnon 2020 sort of thing, but here it is over a hundred years ago. And you could have opened up the newspaper and read about adrenochrome and children and, you know, harvesting it from children and then Moloch in the exact same newspaper on like a regular mainstream newspaper article. So that that was one of like the coolest things that I came across. And that's when I realized like, okay, I'm, I'm onto something really interesting here. Dude. And honestly, everybody keeps saying that the, like the earliest reference they can find to it was like fear and loathing in Las Vegas, but I oh no, man, it goes way farther back. Yeah, dude. Hold on. So let me, <laughs> let me, let me bring up some of my notes here. Um, because I can, I can go way, way deeper. And before, um, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Dude, that's one so, topic I always like to touch on. Cause I feel like, uh, there's a lot of people that, are scared to talk about it but me coming from somebody that has two kids like when it comes to all these like endangering of kids concepts like i like people to be fully aware of this shit so i could talk about this stuff for like episodes and episodes because these are like my primary concerns when it comes to conspiracies it's like trying to protect my own kids of course you know so so i've got a, a direct lineage here of this isn't the this isn't the first example of adrenochrome but it's the first time that it entered into pop culture outside of the, the medical community and this was Aldous Huxley's um, Doors of Perception 1954 um, and then um, Hunter S. Thompson writes about this in 1971 then it becomes a movie in 1998 but there's some even older references to it so for example um, I, I still think Aldous Huxley's mention in Doors of Perception is probably the first mainstream mention and every other 
time you hear adrenochrome in movies or TV, it came from Aldous Huxley. And the reason why we even know about Aldous Huxley is because he moved to Hollywood and he got in with Hollywood writers and, and creatives and they just sort of like embrace the things that he was interested in and vice versa. Um, and, and this also crosses over into satanic panic territory, which is you would never expect, but again, like adrenochrome and satanic panic at some point, they, they have like a direct crossover years after that Moloch uh, newspaper article that I mentioned. But anyway, so anyways, out Huxley, 1954 doors of perception is based on actual research that I had already cited from like the early 1900s where there was kind of like these rumors and mythology already building about adrenochrome as a substance. Um, then 1962 through 1971, Anthony Burgess writes Clockwork Orange. And then in the movie adaptation, uh, Stanley Kubrick puts adrenochrome in the background when they go to like this bar and they're drinking the, the milk that's got all of the drugs in it. It says adrenochrome. It doesn't say adrenochrome, but it says drenchrome. And that was a direct reference to it but it was just in passing. I didn't even catch 19... that one. I've seen that movie more times than I can count. It's just the word in the background and, and they don't, they don't mention anything else, but there's no other um, place for that Drenochrome to have come from. And it came from this reference of Huxley. There's also a short story in 1967 by a guy named Terry Southern. It's called the blood of a wig. And in this one, he um, has a nod to Adrenochrome because he's talking about this, this uh, special substance that they're finding in the blood of schizophrenia patients. So going to the actual research on adrenochrome, where it came from was this concept of dementia precox. Dementia precox was this all-encompassing term that you, you don't know what that term is now because it kind of lost favor and it made way for schizophrenia, multiple personality syndrome, which is now disassociative identity disorder, um, it goes into like Parkinson's and dementia. And the, the reason why this became such an interesting topic for a while is because all of these like rich old people were, you know, they were getting old and they had all of the money and resources at their disposal, you know, like the, the H, the, the JP Morgans and the, the Rockefellers and just, you name it, you know, anyone that was like at the top, they realized like, even though I've got all this money and all these resources, like my mental acuity is declining and I'm going crazier. I'm just like, I'm just losing my brain, my mental facilities while other sharper, poorer people, like how dare those poor peasants out there are not declining and getting dementia and, and all of these, the, you know, Alzheimer's and issues. So they, they essentially were like, we want to figure out the solution to this. Like, how can we stop going crazier? How can we stop getting dementia? And there was this revelation that they were able to detect certain chemicals in the bloodstream of people that had dementia versus people that didn't. And this was sort of this indirect path that led them to discovering adrenochrome um, because they found out that in people that had dementia, there were higher levels of certain like adrenaline based byproducts. So, so anyways, this is like the, the medical background of it. Um, but adrenochrome had always been directly linked to this investigation into dementia. Um, so whenever you, you mention, when you do the actual research in adrenochrome, whenever it starts talking about analyzing blood and trying to figure out the cause or the, the solution to dementia, Alzheimer's, um, multiple personality disorder, this is where adrenochrome kind of was born from. So do you think that it's... Um... <clears throat> 
one of those things that they just try to control like the narrative of what it may actually be or do you think that it's literally what the, these medical records are saying that it is i've got mixed feelings on this so so from all the research i've done so far i believe that adrenochrome just as its own substance is probably not remarkable um and and adrenochrome can be synthesized in a lab. It doesn't have to come from a baby. It doesn't have to come. Like it can come from uh, almost any animal that has uh, adrenal glands. Essentially, if you can produce adrenaline, after that adrenaline is used by your system, it breaks down into all these other compounds. One of those compounds is adrenochrome. Um, but what I do believe is that even if adrenochrome itself is not significant, as adrenaline breaks down into these other things, it's releasing all of these other byproducts. Adrenochrome is one of those many other byproducts. Who's to say that during that that um, that breakdown, that that chemical, you know, that out al that alchemical sort of um, you know transference that's happening in your body, that it's not releasing some other undetected thing that also gets released as adrenochrome gets released. And I don't know if, if, if you're into like the medical marijuana um, field at all. or Actually, I'm, I'm a assuming. cannabis grower by trade. Okay. So, <laughs> so for example, you, you know, the honorage effect, right? But I mean, um, for the listeners that don't know, if you want to explain it, I'm sure that it's probably not a very well talked of concept. You can, you can probably explain it better than I can, but, but correct me if I'm wrong here. So the honorage effect is that uh, this is in, in a very like ignorant uh, way of explaining it, but like in, in the nineties and early two thousands, when, you know, marijuana was illegal everywhere and, and you just kind of like relied on whoever your connect was to tell you what it was. There was just like good weed and bad weed and it smelled good or it didn't smell good. And that was kind of, you know, maybe it tasted piney or sweet or something. And that was kind of all there was to it. Well, fast forward two or three decades. Now we know that there's all sorts of different terpenes, um, that affect the smell and the flavor but in addition to just the smell and the flavor there's this concept that the exact ratio of thc to cbd to cbg to all these other compounds in addition to those terpenes all of it combined is like the uh the sum of the 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 whole is greater than the sum of its parts kind of thing where like if you if you remove the terpenes and you just um smoke you know thc isolate extract by itself then it's not the same experience you would get if you're doing like the whole plant extraction where you get all of the extra um elements in it so that so i would relate this to the same as adrenochrome like adrenochrome by itself is like only consuming thca isolate like okay yeah you can probably get some effect from it and you can study it but you're missing out on all of these other terpenes and CBGs and, you know, CBCs and CBDs all working together to give you a completely different holistic experience. And 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we didn't even know about half of the, uh, these, you know, CBG. I don't know if anyone even knew what CBG was 30 years ago. No. Um, and it was a brand new experience and we're just finding out about it now. We're just finding out how important these tiny little, um, you know, variations are. So I would relate that back to when adrenaline gets broken down in your system and it produces adrenochrome, who's to say that there's not some equivalent of like this honorage effect of like terpenes and CBG and CBD. It's not just adrenochrome and, you know, and like the, the handful of others that we kind of like know about, 
because we only found out about this honorage effect after medical marijuana became a little bit more legal. All of a sudden, like thousands and thousands of people are studying it in a lab environment and they've got access to uh, standards and, and research and they can share information between each other. That whole revolution of people in the, the medical marijuana field finding out about this, that doesn't exist for adrenochrome because there's not a lot of people that are experimenting with like how the body breaks down adrenaline outside of very specific clinical procedures where it tends to do with like um, blood coagulation and like very specific like eye conditions that adrenochrome happens to help out. But if we were to do as much research into it as people have been doing into the medical marijuana for the last 30 years, then we might find that there's there actually is something sort of like mystical or or interesting about adrenochrome. And this is where it goes back to maybe it is being suppressed. Uh, maybe there is something about it that, you know, is not being released to the greater community. But I mean, there's it, a bunch of different depictions of it, too. Like Hunter S. Thompson depicts it as almost like a psychedelic. And then, like, we also get it depicted as, like, uh, something that keeps you young. Like, there's a bunch of different depictions of it. And, again, it could be because of different variations of the same thing. Or it may just all be just, you know, huge hearsay of people just coming up with stories on what it is. Again, because there's not enough research done on it. Well, so, so in the mid-50s, there was a guy called Abram Hoffer that actually injected people. He gave intravenous um injections of adrenochrome some people i think i don't know if they smoked it but there was all sorts of different ingestion methods and he documented in the mid 50s that it did have some kind of psychedelic effects on people although i don't know if those studies have been repeated um enough to like to actually show that they were consistent but but those studies is what prompted Aldous Huxley to then write about it as a psychedelic substance and then um, everyone else just kind of like read what Aldous Huxley said which was based on incomplete um, medical experiments from the 50s and they just kind of like kept building on that over and over to the point where you know it's got this like it can make you live forever or you snort it and it's like touching God and you have to extract it directly from like a kid while they're being tortured. And so like all this is built on, again, like I mentioned the, the early 1900s newspaper articles, like it all kind of like keeps building on this mythology until it turns into this, this, you know, very grand story with all these like uh, huge visuals of demons and, and flames <laughs> and torture. I mean, Hunter S. Thompson, theoretically, knowing how that guy was and the fact that he purposely wrote his books as fiction so he wouldn't get himself in trouble, like, maybe he was somebody that actually got to try it and maybe, like, the method in which he tried it that had a psychedelic effect because I feel like a lot of the stuff that he wrote about was stuff he actually did. He didn't write a lot of, like, fiction in you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, and the, the fear and loathing was based on, like, his actual experiences going through um, and if you if you want to get real deep into like this kind of like dark avenue, the, the Franklin cover up, um, which was written by John DeCamp. But there's also a great book called, I think, The Franklin Conspiracy by Nick Bryant. Um, and these touch on that uh, Hunter S. Thompson, one of his like camera guys, I think, or one of the guys that he worked with was like directly related to like child sacrifice and Bohemian Grove. And they might have even crossed over into like the Johnny Gosh kidnappings. Um, so like, so Hunter S. Thompson has these direct connections in, in the conspiracy world, uh, depending on who you talk to. Dude, and he made a lot of references himself to a lot of weird things throughout all of his books too. Like everybody looked at, again, at his books like they were fiction, but now we're looking at him years later. 
And but he knew about some shit, man. He knew about some yeah, real, man. some real shit for sure. Especially with, uh, I don't know, just like the whole demonic aspect to it too. And I feel like Hunter S. Thompson is definitely like uh, somebody that would have been looking for psychedelic type things. So no in that movie, way, in the movie too, it was uh, lizard people, right? Like when yep. he starts, yeah, they everyone starts turning into lizards. We gotta get the golf shoes. <laughs> I can't, <laughs> can't navigate through this muck. <laughs> Yeah, and and he, uh, I mean, that one, I that movie alone probably did the most out of anyone to instill Adrenochrome as this like satanic, evil, uh, mythological psychedelic. Because I think in the movie they're mentioning that he had the option to either get this Adrenochrome or a full um, adrenal gland that you could just like chew on. Yep. And he was like, "Where do you get this from?" And he's like, "Satanist man," or s- something along those lines. Yeah, he said something like, uh, I think they got it from a shark, but the guy was a Satanist, so he may may have gotten it from an actual human being. Like, yeah, he makes some weird yeah. reference like that. And that's when you start seeing him as, like, the demon dancing around him, and he's just tripping out, like, man, I think you took too much. And, he's, like, and, and he keeps pressing bottle. on him to talk to him more about Adrenochrome, but he's, like, too far gone, and they never really, like, resolved the conversation. See, that's what makes me wonder, too. I wonder if it's something that he tried, but he was also trying to get information on it, and he was just trying to write it in his way to try to, like, tell the general public that this thing does exist in whatever form or means that he had it in, you know, was this, or theoretically his, uh, forgot his name. His attorney was the one who gave it to him or whatever. Like maybe his attorney just knew about adrenochrome and he gave him something totally different. It was just fucking with him. And there's <laughs> Thompson developed this whole, like, Oh shit, what is this stuff? <laughs> Yo, honestly, that's actually a pretty good explanation for it. Cause they fuck with each other through the whole movie, dude. Like it could have literally just been him with some really, really, really fucking strong acid. And he was just like, yeah, it's adrenochrome, man. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we're starting to get to, uh, towards the end of the show. I know you said you wanted to do um, a couple drops on some stuff. Uh, were you interested in still doing that? Oh, I mean, yeah, we, we actually got to talk over, you know, time samplers and secret mystery school and uh, never a straight answer, which is coming out. I've got a uh, new comic series that I've been working on with um, Juan from the one-on-one podcast. It's also featuring Chris Prosser and Mark Steves from Illuminati Confirmed. Um, and Mark Steves also has a podcast, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy. Chris Prosser's is the Mensa podcast. Uh, the comic series is called The Chosen Juan. And this is about <laughs> Juan from the one-on-one podcast. And it's essentially follows conspiracy podcasters uh, through a comic series, getting into all kinds of, of trouble and um, lots of fart jokes and dick jokes and, uh, um, you know, jokes about Flat Earth and Tartaria and, and Saturn worship and everything that you've come to know and love. Say so that'll definitely be one that I'll be looking out for, for sure. And when it drops, I'm sure I'll see it, you know, on Juan's page because he's always posting the different drawings as they come out. So, you know, I've been keeping tabs on it just a little bit, of course, because it's definitely something that sparks my interest as far as like all your comic books seem to do. So you definitely, I've, your niche, I've got man. a, I've got a couple other weird ones. So I've got a, a series called connect the dots, which is essentially written and illustrated as a children's book, but it's about conspiracy topics. The first one is uh, the confounding conspiracy of chemtrails. And it's essentially, if you, if you grew up with the magic school bus, imagine a parody of the magic school bus where instead of going on science trips, they go on conspiracy theory trips. Um, So the first one's on chemtrails and sort of like weather manipulation. The second one that is about 80% done, might come out this year, probably early next year, is called the Secret Society Job Fair. And it breaks (laughs) down the evolution of secret societies from the Cold of Mithra to the Cold of Demeter 
uh, to Skull and Bones, the Bavarian Illuminati, Freemason, Scottish Ray, um, Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, OTO. Like it goes through, it gets uh, into five percenters. It gets to like every American conspiracy theory you can think of um, and secret society. It, it kind of breaks down the whole lineage again uh, from the, the perspective like a children's book. And then an, another one we were talking about earlier on the show is a series of coloring books. So I've got Paranoid Portraits is one. I've got one called um, American Cryptozoology or American Cryptids, which has just got like uh, like 30 different cryptids in it. And then another one called Cult of the All-Seeing Eye, which is just like a very, very highly detailed. It'll take you forever to color it in with all the details. And every page has to do with these aliens that are worshiping this, you know, this eye of providence from outer space. So that one definitely sounds really cool too. I saw these earlier when I was looking and I'm glad I kind of got the rundown on what each one of them are. So I know which ones I, I want to pick up now for sure. Not that all of them don't sound great, but there's a couple of particular ones that sound like they uh, be right up my alley. So I'll definitely have to be checking into those. Ones. And I'm niche enough that I realize that not everything I make, everyone's going to love every bit of it. So I, I intentionally try to make, you know, at least one thing that someone out there is gonna like so if you don't like silly cartoony stuff i've got that dark gritty sort of like uh alternative history detective noir story or if you like it more campy or if you like something that's a little bit uh less on the gore and stuff i've i've got a little bit for everyone so if you want to learn about mk ultra or chemtrails or sacred geometry uh there's there's many different ways you can learn about it from me Dude, and that's definitely what it comes down to as far as this community goes, too, because uh, you got to have a wide range of things because it's like certain people start following certain rabbit holes. And, you know, if you're too far into one rabbit hole, you're going to miss the opportunity to get all these other people interested in what you're trying to do, of course. And, and another big motivation, too, for all of this is that so much of the conspiracy theory research gets into these very negative, dark, like you read, a, you know, a read enough books on Project Monarch and you're just like, man, every person out there is trying to kidnap me and enslave me. And, you know, like you don't trust anyone else out there anymore. So, I mean, the, the information and the research is important enough that it doesn't always need to be drowned in doom and gloom. And, you know, make you walking away like you need to go in, um, into like therapy because you're getting depressed because of all of this stuff. So, like, I do my best to, for example, show the process of torturing children in a Project Monarch to turn them into, you know, mind control slaves. But I do it with like funny jokes and like uh, bright colors and, and you know, interesting visuals. Uh, so that that's kind of part of the plan here is is to not just like beat you over the head with you know how horrible everything is and and maybe laugh about it a little bit i don't know hey taking that uh there's two ways to say things concept into a whole different light <laughs> yeah exactly but uh i guess before we get going do you want to plug all your stuff so everybody knows where to come and find you yeah so paranoidamerican.com is probably the best way to get a, a sense of what we're doing if you want to actually buy some comics i would appreciate it check it out on amazon just search for paranoid american and click around until you find the stuff i've also got a shop on etsy although it's almost always uh out of stock as soon as i i stock up some custom stuff there it sells out in like a week or two so um amazon's the best way to actually find some of it and then the only social media i use these days is instagram that's at paranoid american uh so yeah come follow like pump my fucking numbers thank you 
And then uh, one other thing I always like to do is leave us with some words of wisdom. So do you have some awesome words of wisdom you'd like to leave the listeners with or anything you live by? Yeah, man. I mean, I'm an idiot. I, uh, I don't think I've particularly skilled at anything uh, specific, but uh, a mantra that I always go by is like, if that idiot can do it, then this idiot can do it. And that's <laughs> kind of worked for me long enough. So anyone out there that's like, you know, I wish I could write a comic or I wish I could do X, Y, Z. Like, just go, just go fucking do it, man. Like, even if it's, even if it's really bad at first, you got to make three or four bad ones until you make a mediocre one. And then you got to make three or four mediocre ones until you make a decent one, unless you're just like a natural savant, but that's not most people. And if you just look at, you know, entertainment, music, music is a great one. Um, the, the most talented musicians aren't necessarily the ones that you ever get to hear and see their albums. It's just the ones that put in all the work. So just put in the work, man. And, and eventually someone will see your stuff. Uh, unfortunately, if you're like Van Gogh, it might happen after you're dead and then people will recognize it, but you got, you got to put in the work, man. So I guess that's my words of wisdom is, is if there's some other idiot out there that can do it, then you could probably do it too, no matter what it is. I really like that one actually, because that's part of the reason why I started my podcast was everybody else on different podcasts saying stuff like, just do it. Cause if you don't do it, it's never going to happen. So honestly, dude, that's some great, great, great words to live by. Just get out there and do it. So thank you everyone for uh, listening to another episode of inquiries of our reality. Had a lot of fun on this one. Hopefully you'll go and scoop some of these great comic books. I know I will. I've already scooped a couple myself and I'm sure I'll be grabbing more in the future. Uh, have a great night, everybody, wherever you are. And I'll uh, catch you on the next one.